It does not cost much. It's pleasant. One of those almost hypnotic businesses, like a dance from some ancient ceremony. It leaves you filled with peace, and the house filled with one of the world's sweetest smells. But it takes a lot of time. If you can find that, the rest is easy. And if you cannot rightly find it, make it. For probably there is no chiropractic treatment, no yoga exercise, no hour of meditation in a music-throbbing chapel that will leave you emptier of bad thoughts than this homely ceremony of making bread. By M. F. K. Fisher in How to Cook a Wolf, written in 1942. Hey there, I'm Dr. Karen Bellinger anthropologist, historical archaeologist, and wannabe time traveler. Welcome back to Working Overtime, the podcast that examines society through the lens of work, over time, and across cultures. Being human is a pretty curious gig, and always has been. Here's a question for you. What do you get when you mix flour, liquid, you know, maybe milk, water, even beer, bit of salt, and some heat? I'm going to assume you read the title before pressing play, so your guess is probably spot on. It's bread. But bread is so much more than the sum of its parts, the simple ingredients I just listed combined. Bread isn't just a nearly universal staple food. Bread is one of the most prevailing cultural symbols of connection and community, baked right into the fabric of human history. Pun definitely intended. You know me. Here to walk us through bread making, whether for survival, a hobby, or full-fledged business, is our good friend, classical historian and baker-in-residence, Dr. Owen Reese. So, aprons on, and let's get baking. Owen is a history lecturer and career historian. He holds a PhD in ancient history from Manchester Metropolitan University, an MA in history from the University of Nottingham, and a BA in ancient history from University of Reading. Owen studies warfare and society and the pre-modern world generally, but his passion is ancient Greece. He's the founder and lead editor of BadAncient.com, which fact-checks common claims made about the ancient world and exposes the prevalent pseudo-history in the modern day. Owen, thank you so much for joining us today, for coming back. You are a return guest. Thank you very much for having me back. I really enjoyed my time last time I was with you. Uh, I'm really looking forward to uh, chatting again. Oh, me too. So, you know, again, just sort of in the spirit that I opened the episode, I, I honestly think it's worth asking you to tell us what we're talking about when we talk about bread. I mean, banana bread is not the same as sourdough bread, right? Right. Yeah. Uh, defining bread is actually it's, it's something we take very much for granted. Um, something you mentioned in your in your introduction there uh, about the ubiquity of bread. Um, it doesn't really encourage us. It's, it's ever presence doesn't really encourage us to wonder, well, hold on, are these things actually the same? Well, if you've got flour of any grain, whether it be wheat, whether it be uh, barley, whether it be rice, you know, and you've got a liquid, water, milk, beer, cider, whatever it be, um, and you mix it together, you're in the process of making a bread. 
But the problem is you're also in the process of making a cake. You're also in the process of making what the English would call a biscuit or a cookie. Um, you're in the process of making um, scones. You're in, the, you're in the process of baking, aren't you? Um, so how do you actually define what a bread is? I mean, today, if you ask most people to define a bread as opposed to something else, okay? So what's the difference between a bread and a cake? Well, cakes are sweet, aren't they? Um, cakes are very rich, usually with, uh, with milk, cream, egg, whatever it be, they become very rich and very sweet, something you have almost as a dessert. Um, and bread is not. Bread is a, um, a savory. It's a savory item. And that's all well and good. That's kind of how most people would describe it. The problem is that many breads don't fit that bill. So we have what's called an enriched dough. So a brioche, for instance, is an enriched dough. So it's a bread made with eggs, made with milk, made with sugar, sweet. Um, and, you know, there are other items, other breads that, again, are kind of live in this blurry line. So I mentioned a brioche. The other one, which is a favorite for my family, my Irish family, is the um, soda bread. Oh, right. Yeah, the one with the raisins in it, right? Uh, well, not the way we make it. Uh, oh no that's Whoa. regional variation isn't it regional oh, variation it is oh this nope. well I, I probably bring to you the the, the bostonian um uh. bastardization <laughs> of pure irish soda bread although bostonians do cling to their you know irish oh, of course of course yeah strong irish links aren't there to boston mm -hmm. um well the irish uh, bread recipe i have comes from uh oddly enough from um uh, some of the monasteries in ireland so it's the monk making the bread from centuries ago it's their recipes which is um basically white flour a bit of wholemeal flour um a soured milk whether it be buttermilk from the process of churning butter is the liquid that's left over that's a sour uh liquid or literally soured milk so my great aunts living in northern ireland during the second world war would literally leave milk uh, any leftover milk they would leave it on the um you know, by the window in the sun so they purposefully soured and then they'd use that with the flour and the bicarbonate of soda to create that makes me not want to go eat irish soda right now <laughs> owen you know i didn't actually need to know that i can't unhear that so okay why is bread so central to human life what's so yeah what's the significance of bread i know it's a huge question but do you have a quick answer for us before we dive into the the brass tacks of things the significance of bread is its simplicity it's not always easy to get hold of the flour you know the processing the process of the making the ingredients is not easy but the making of bread is very easy um it is something where historically we see men women and children engaging with so it is uh, not only an omnipresent staple, um, it is the everyman's food. Uh, the richest of right. the rich will have fancy bread, but they'll still have bread. The poorest of the poor may have more of a porridge made out of um, hardtack almost, but still working with bread. Um, that's what it offers historians. It offers us the opportunity to see what everyone is doing. And as, I, as a history lover, what it also allows you to do is to connect with people through time. If you get yourself a dough and you start kneading away, you are taking part in an action that belongs in a lineage of human knowledge that goes back thousands of years. People have been doing this for thousands of years. 
And I just find that I amazing. I love that. That's, you know what? It's, it's poetic even, right? I mean, it's beyond romantic. I, I really think that that's a, a, such a good point because there are so few things, as you say, as, as an historian that we look at that we can say, yeah, well, we, we know that just about everybody participated in the production and or consumption of this, of this item. So yeah, that's pretty cool. To give you an idea of how old the history of bread really is, I mean, it's, it's impossible to put in a, a, like, a date on the first loaf of bread ever made as much as we'd like to. Um, yeah. The oldest bread they found, they found archeologically is um, over 14,000 years old. Yeah, it's stunning, right? It was found in Jordan. Um, and interestingly, it was found in Jordan and it's a flatbread. It's a really simple bread to make. Um, it's a flatbread and they found it not only uh, carbonized, so they were able to test it and, you know, discover it was bread. They so also carbonized, found... meaning, meaning just for our listeners, meaning it's burned. Yeah, basically. Um, so they realized it was bread, but they also found remnants of meat. Um, so roasted meat. So what this fundamentally is, is the, the original wrap, you know, uh, it's a flatbed wrap around meat. <laughs> it's the donor kebab band uh, exactly. equivalent that you have here in, in the UK. That's great. <laughs> a, a hero spelled G-Y-R-O. That's, that's, that's the American correlate. I love it, right? Nothing new under the sun. No, indeed. Indeed. And the, you know, bread has always interested people as well. Um, there's a lovely, uh, like the, the age of bread and the importance of bread in human culture has always fascinated other, other cultures as well as, you know, just you and me, Karen. Um, so like the original historian, Herodotus of Halicarnassus, Greek historian writing in the fifth century, he tells a story of a, an Egyptian pharaoh, uh, Samtek, the first is his name, who basically wanted to find out what was the original human language you know, before all cultures split away and broke up and created all the uh, languages that existed in his time, what was the original language? So he created an experiment. He took two babies and gave them to a shepherd who could not speak to them. So these two babies were raised not hearing a single word. That was the idea. And then uh, the experiment was whatever the first word spoken was by that child or one of the children, that would belong to the original human language because they've not been tainted by other languages. That was the experiment he, uh, he attempted. And the first word spoken, we are told by Herodotus, is the word bekos, which is a Phrygian word for bread. Wow. So, the, so the, uh, to prove the oldest, uh, the original human language, it is just interesting that the word that gives it away is indeed the word for bread. You have to wonder whether the shepherd was sort of whispering to, to somebody, <laughs> good bread, or I don't know. <laughs> I, he doesn't say if the shepherd's Phrygian. Uh, I don't know. Oh, that's a, well, that's a cool mystery. I love that story. I love that. Thank you. And last question before we, before we kind of dive into all of this. Um, what I, I have a question for you, Owen. You're a bread maker. So mm. if given the chance... Would you be keen to recreate the flavors of ancient bread, um, such as we understand them to have to have been, and why or why not? Uh, um, uh, well, 
Um, no. No, not really. <laughs> not really. Um, it, it, yeah, it'll take quite a lot of explanation. Uh, but no, no, I do not think that is a good idea. All right. Well, I tell you what, I have a proposition to make. We, why don't we come back to that at the end? I'm going to okay. assume you will have filled my mind with all sorts of new gems of information on this topic. And I can, um, I can perhaps probe a little bit more knowledgeably that concept with you. <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> I'm not a bread maker. I have to tell you, I love to cook. I hate all kinds of baking. So maybe you can inspire me to expand my repertoire through all of this. Let's talk about how this notion of, of bread making, which as we've established, you know, has been ubiquitous among humans of all kinds and across cultures from basically as long as we, we have evidence for the use of grains in this way, um, to a profession. You know, where did the baker emerge and under what circumstances? There's two ways of kind of looking at this. You have the professionalization of the role of a baker. So, you know, where do we see people specifically being implemented to bake bread? And the answer to that is predominantly Mesopotamia and ancient Egypt. So uh, we, most evidence we see for this is in Egypt um, or sort of the, the more um, expansive evidence we see is in pharaonic Egypt. So, you know, this is the Egypt of the pyramids. This is the Egypt Yeah, I was just going to say, I, I feel like a lot of evidence that I have read about or heard about kind of anecdotally has to do with the workers who built the pyramids too, right? That just that they were um, paid partially in bread. Is that true? Yeah, yes, exactly it. Um, you know, how do you build the pyramids if it's not aliens? Well, you need a lot of men. And it's not people. aliens, it's not slaves. They did need to eat. They, they had to feed these people. <laughs> precisely that. It's precisely that. Yeah. So yeah. what we get, we, we get kind of a, a, a two lines here. So one is what we might consider like an institution or an institutionalization. Yeah. So uh, a good example would be the building the pyramids building a temples, things like that. You, you, you create an institution by doing that. So you and need, you need to, scale. You need yeah. some means to produce bread at scale. Yeah, that makes precisely that. Um, so that's one area where we see it. The other area we see it is in large, um, rich households. So rich ah, households right, okay. that can afford to have a bakery on site. Now, the thing about ancient bakeries that's very different to a modern bakery is until very late in the ancient period, milling of flour and baking of bread happen at the same location. Okay, so when you're talking about, oh, they have a baker on site in Egypt, that's actually quite a large undertaking because they've also got to grind the flour. Uh, they've got to do all the processing themselves on site. So the, the, this is our first example of what we might call, call a professional baker, or at least a specialized baker, I suppose it would be more okay. a specialized baker. The other way of looking at the professionalization of baking and bread making is when someone goes out into business on their own. All right. So you're not attached to a household. You're not part of like a um, uh, state funded institution that's going on or building projects going on. You as an individual are living the capitalist dream of, you know, uh, opening your the bakery uh, shop. Yeah, I'm going to go sell. make some bread and exactly. make some bread. <laughs> you live the dream, Karen. You live the dream. You know, I just, I've, I'm just stuck in this whole sort of, you know, 1960s American idiom of bread for money. Like I'm having my hippie moment. I'm sorry, I'll stop. 
The private bakery and the private baker appears in our evidence around the 6th century before Common Era. So just before kind of Athens is democratic, you know, the, the classical age of Greece that we think of. It's just before that's that period. a long time ago, though. I mean, it is a long time ago. That's it absolutely 2,500 years ago. Plus, yeah. Yeah, mm. absolutely. Um, annoyingly, we don't have a lot of great information about, <laughs> about you know, what they had to do, um, how much money they were making, things like that. but we can grasp uh, little snippets um, floating about. Um, but yeah, so we see um, in Athens, for instance, we do see that there are private bakers who are, some of them are wealthy, you know, they can make money. Um, we also see evidence of women selling bread in the marketplaces, which tells us that there's a mar- um, almost like a, a, a production line going on all the way to sale, if you think of it like that. Um, so yeah, in terms of specialization of bakers, it's definitely Mesopotamian, pharaonic Egypt. But for the idea of a private bakery, the idea that you'd set out on your own to try and make money doing this um, independently of other people, um, most likely classical Greece based on, or just before classical Greece, based on the evidence we have. So the short answer is a long time and (laughs) broadly disparate geographical regions. And that makes sense. Look, we've established that bread is this kind of universal staple. So um, it's going to be one of the first ways people are going to try to make money privately, right? I mean, it, it just makes sense. Well, it does make sense. But the question you've got to ask, of course, is why do you need to go to someone else to make bread? Maybe um, you don't have time or maybe you stink at it. making bread because you're like me. I, mean, <laughs> I don't know. This is precisely <laughs> it. So the very fact that it is possible to make a living out of making bread, which all an individual needs is flour and water. The very fact that the profession can exist doing that tells us more about the society in which this is happening. Yeah, it's a complex society, right? There's a certain amount of specialization of labor evolving in a society like this. Yes, yeah, absolutely. It's absolutely that. Um, And also it's the idea of the commodity of time. So actually many people today who I talk to go, I'd love to make bread, but I don't have time, which is perfectly valid. You know, we've got lives to live. We've got careers to go for, but uh, that's true. And it, it, that is revealing in its own self. It gives us an idea of how we value time. It gives us an idea of how they valued time back then. Yeah, absolutely. And so I, I understand that, you know, as in any topic to do with the ancient past, we, we struggle sometimes with evidence. Well, given the evidence that we do have, is it possible to kind of sketch out a typical day for one of these ancient professional bread makers. So, you know, I, I, I suppose that involves the bread making process, but I, maybe we could try to frame it more generally in, you know, what it took to run their business. If we were thinking about one of these, these private independent operators. Yeah, it, it kind of is because the, it's even when the evidence is not always there, it's very easy to extrapolate because bread requires only a few things. And basically as a baker, you wake up and you need to secure those things. So your first concern is you wake up, like all bakers do, you wake up early. The reason you wake up early is because people are hungry when they wake up and they want food. 
And it's a it's a, a culture of bread making uh, professionally that exists to de- to this very day. You know, bakers work on yeah. ridiculously unreasonable hours, um, but then they finish at about two. So first things first, you need to secure your grain. Okay. You need to get your grain in, uh, whether it be by delivery, if you're a large enough operation, or by you going to the grain markets and buying enough um, grain that you need, the types of grain you need. Um, you know, the ancient world made bread out of lots of different types of grains. You know, uh, the Greeks and the and the um, Mesopotamians, for instance, ate a lot of barley. Um, further west, they ate more wheat or different types of wheat, whether it be emma like in Egypt or, um, you know, spelt or other forms of wheat. Uh, you need to secure the grain. You then need to process that grain. Like I said, you're a miller as much as you are a baker or your team is. So, you know, that grain needs uh, breaking down. It needs turning into flour. That flour then needs sifting and then it needs sifting again, depending on what type of bread you're making. Do you need a nice white flour? Do you, can you uh, produce more of a wholemeal, more of a granary style, whatever it be, uh, your sifting process will determine that. So uh, that's it. So you, you set it up for the day, ready to go. Uh, make sure you've got all the necessary um, ingredients, water, milk, if necessary for your recipes. Um, make sure you've got... If what you're about going to... salt? Was salt used? Yeah, salt. Absolutely salt. Absolutely. You definitely need salt. Um, once you've made sure you've got everything in place, of course, the other thing, if you're making a raised bread, what we call a leavened bread, so a bread that you intend to grow in size, you need a leavening agent, whatever that may be. Um, most commonly in the Greek and Roman world, that leavening agent was an old dough which already had yeast in it. All right. So you keep dough from yesterday and use it in today to produce more yeast to create your bread. Um, so all these processes need to be going on. They all need to be happening and you need to Where be Where does the to yeast go. come from originally? The air. The air. The air. If you want to make a bread yeast soup, or starter, as they call it. So basically your own supply of yeast that you can then use to make bread. This is, by the way, how we make sourdough, um, which is kind of king of the breads at the moment. Um, it is, isn't it? It's everywhere. It used to be, in the States at least, it was the San Francisco specialty, but it is literally everywhere now. Well, it's the oldest form of leavened bread. You can't really get an older form of so bread than this. Interesting. So to make that, all you basically do is get a little bit of flour, a little bit of water, mix it, leave it for a day, add a bit more flour, a bit more water, do this for five days and you'll have produced a yeast culture. That yeast culture, you can now use, you can now use that to produce bread. I love it. But so you you get to save five days if you save a bit of dough from the day before. That is the capitalist way. I love it. Exactly that. Exactly that. They worked out that if you get that yeast filled dough, uh, if you throw it straight into a bread, it will kind of work, but it's not great. But if you then soak that in water, you go back to that soup I was talking about. You basically kickstart that soup quicker rather than the long five-day process I just mentioned. Um, So it's kind of like a cheat. So yeah, uh, what we might call uh, capitalist ingenuity. Okay, so we've got our old starter. We've been very um, sensible in our approach to making bread in this particular bakery. Uh, What comes next? We've kickstarted this soup by putting it into water. Then what? Well, then we jump into the process of bread making that exists 
to this very day. You um, get your flour, you mix it with the relevant liquid. Um, I'm keep, I keep being vague about liquid. Water is the most common liquid used, but it doesn't have to be. You can use beer, you can use milk, you can use anything that's wet, basically. Um, it will work as long as it's edible or drinkable. Um, so you're mixing it with your liquid. You may, um, at this point, if you want a raised bread, if you want leavened bread, you might then add your starter or whatever other um, system you have for leavening the bread. So modern day, you throw in your yeast. Um, salt, of course, for you, Karen. Um, oh, salt goes you. in. Um, you mix it. And then once you've mixed it, you tip it out and you knead it. So kneading is probably the most definitive way of knowing you're talking about a bread. You know, going back to the definition question. Ah, okay. For me, you know you're making a bread because you're kneading dough. And by kneading dough, what you're doing is you are stretching the dough in front of you, not just a, um, kind of bringing it together. You are actually working it for minutes and minutes and minutes. Um, yeah, what just, does that do? It works the um, proteins in the flour and produces the gluten. Uh, uh, basically, basically, the gluten in the flour, in the flour, in the dough, creates the stretchy elasticity of bread dough. Okay. So this is why you can have like a 40 gram ball of dough and make a massive pizza base because of how stretchy it is, because you've worked the proteins, you've produced the, the relevant levels of gluten, you've worked the gluten so it can stretch far enough. Okay. So that's, that's what you're doing with it. Um, it does take time. Um, and depending on how high the gluten content is in your flour will determine how hard it is to do. So if you're using low gluten, oh, this is hard. It really is. I've done it. It's hard work. It's like, it's like trying to crush a rock with your hand. If you ever do make bread and you knock it back, so that's you knock the air out of it as it's rising. So it's still dough filling up with gas and you knock it back. You can actually see the stretchy, almost tendrils of the gluten in the dough. And that becomes uh, basically your um the crumb of your bread this is what gets filled up by the gas as it as it um bakes and this is what gives your bread structure and so gluten is the enemy of the modern day but it is like the best friend of a bread maker once you've mixed and once you've kneaded it now depends on what bread you're making so if you're making a flat bread that needs to be rolled out uh, you know, broken up into little balls of, of uh, dough, rolled out, thrown onto a fire, thrown onto a pan, thrown onto a skillet, whatever it is you're using, um, chucked in an oven. Um, and you can produce lots of different types of flatbreads. If you want a quick, easy flatbread, like an Indian chapati, which is just flour and water, you roll it out, chuck it on a pan. If you want like a, a Greek style pita bread, a pita bread, um, you need steam. So you need to basically enclose that flatbread so it puffs up with steam. Um, but all very quick to make. If you want to make a raised bread, a leavened bread, if you want the yeast time to grow within the bread, within the dough, um, you've now got to leave that dough for hours. You've got to let it do its magic. And only then when that's ready and you've shaped it and you've uh, put it in most commonly in like a mold, so it has a shape, holds mm -hmm. its shape, you then bake that in an oven if you're in an industrial bakery. 
Wow. So all these different complex ways to work with really simple ingredients to produce such different results. It's fascinating. Yeah, it, it is. And it's, it is amazing um, just how many different ways you can cook the exact same dough and produce completely different breads. Um, I also love uh, the lots of different ways of cooking. It means that, you know, when you're talking about the history of bread, we're not just talking about urban societies. It doesn't have to be urbanized systems. So we know nomadic groups, uh, pastoralists also make breads, you know, usually flat breads, usually cooked on a fire, but you can do it. And it is a simple process. What kind of organization of labor do you think you would have seen if you had walked into one of these ancient bakeries and you know did the scale of production vary from region to region yeah the um the scale of production varied dramatically from region to region um the organization determined is determined by the size the bigger the bakery the more organized you have to be um so I suppose the easiest way to think about it is if you've got a small family bakery, which is what we hear about in Greece, for instance, small family operations, um, they are run as a close tight knit group, you know, as a family group, um, but most likely helped out by enslaved people. Um, the bigger the bakery is, because ultimately what you need are more bodies on the ground to work the grain you need more bodies on the ground to work the um the machines you need uh, you need them to do the kneading for you to produce enough bread for what you're doing so as time progresses through the ancient period we see larger and larger operations because we see larger and larger cities larger and larger populations um and unfortunately so our, our best evidence comes from the roman period and unfortunately what is made very clear is the majority of these people are enslaved and it is a horrible, horrible situation to be in. The working conditions are supposed to be atrocious. They're supposed to be, uh, you know, chains, whips, beatings. Um, that's before you even consider just the normal working environment, which are obviously very hot, very sweaty, very crowded, long hours. Um, we are told in uh, more than one Roman source that basically you could almost... Uh, they would threaten their badly behaved slaves with being sent to the bakery. Really? No, yeah. see, I thought that's amazing. I would have not guessed that. I mean, I guess it makes sense though. Um, uh, processing grains into flour, as you said, is no small feat. I mean, that's hard graft. It's really hard graft. And depending on the flour, uh, depending on the grain you've got, it's really hard. So things like spelt, things like emo, we uh, in Egypt, these are hard things to crack um, and to break down before you even Not start just crack, but grind into yep. fine powder. <laughs> this is it. Yeah. I mean, at least um, wheat flour uh, is easier to produce, but it's, it's still time consuming. It's still tiring to do, um, but it is technically easier to, to make. Um, so, on the one hand, we do see most of the people discussed are slaves. Um, and that probably gives you a good indication of just how hard this job is. The other element of this, though, is we do have evidence of paid workers. Um, so, for instance, in Pompeii, the city of Pompeii in Italy, there is at least one graffito. So a single piece of graffiti, one graffito 
um, which discusses payment at a bakery. Um, and it's, uh, if I remember right, it's one denarius and a loaf of bread for work. That's your payment. So, you know, you could be paid to do this as well. But then you think, well, if the enslaved think it's the worst place possible. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. How, was one denarius a good pay? I mean, was it sort of hardship pay or? This is it. It makes you wonder how, um, how, how desperate do you need to be for work to do that? Um, but unfortunately, we don't know what the job actually was for. So, you know, maybe they were yeah. supervisors. I, I, we don't know. And that makes me want to ask, what, what, what credentials, if any, did someone need to, to become a professional baker? I mean, if it's, we want to think about it as something that has been a universal foodstuff that people have made throughout time, you know, what did it take to hang out your shingle and become a baker professionally? Um, I think, I think the best way to think about it is why, I mentioned it earlier, didn't I? Why would you go to a baker for bread um, in a society where you habitually make bread regularly? Um, and ultimately the answer has got to be, you can become a baker because you're good at it. Um, so there's no actual credentials. There's no like certificate. You don't go away and get your degree in bread making. Um, but you must have credibility. You must make good bread. The yeah, other fair, thing, fair enough, fair enough. Yeah. The other thing which uh, we do get a slight indication of is um, the uh, tradition, family tradition. So you're a family of bakers. So of course you're a baker, um, which I guess you kind of expect really. Um, by the Roman period, we do see the creation of bakery guilds so, um, you know, groups of uh, bakers coming together and being formally um, uh, turned into a community, I suppose. Um, and then these guilds held certain power. Um, so I guess being part of that guild might give you credibility, might give you. Oh, uh, yeah. You know. yeah. And was there any sort of, you know, kind of quality control or uh, regulations that these guilds sort of held their members to uphold? Oddly enough, the only evidence I've come across for quality control of bread. There might be some in the ancient world I haven't yet, I haven't yet seen, um, but I have found it in the medieval world um, where they introduced uh, quality control in, in medieval and early modern Britain um, because people are starting to fill up the flour, fill out the flour with other things. Such Hopefully as sawdust. not sawdust. Oh, I was just going to say. Why did that pop into my head? Uh, oh, that's sawdust. Um, you know, basically grit. No wonder bread. their teeth were so bad. Well, <laughs> um, oddly, you should say that because uh, Egyptian bread was so bad that it wore down the teeth of Egyptian. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, yeah, I know. That. We see it in the mummies. I yeah. know it's to the highest level. We see pharaohs with it. Yeah, which gives you an idea of you know even the very rich can't get away from the kind of rudimentary processing. And do you think that being a being a professional baker would have been um, considered a, a good gig? You know, back in the day. I mean, what was it? Were they well respected? Because they make something that everybody knew how to make, right? Maybe they made yeah. it better, but uh... this is it. They they make what everyone else can make, but they make it better. Um, so it's interesting, isn't it? You know, the artisan has always sat quite strangely in many cultures. You know, sometimes they're revered, sometimes they're looked down on um in um in the ancient world 
the problem wasn't so much that you were a baker, um, which obviously meant you weren't elite, you weren't aristocratic, um, but that you know didn't make you any worse than anyone else who wasn't elite and wasn't aristocratic. The problem was bakers did have the potential to make a lot of money. And that made you that kind of nouveau riche, you know, the new man, someone who has the money to act like they're rich, posh, aristocratic, um, but aren't. So they're often mocked in our very uh, elitist writers' works, um, you know, very much they're pretending to be rich, they're pretending to be posh, um, which is, let's be honest, not unique to the ancient world. We see this throughout no, history. No, no. Um, so... Um, I wouldn't say they're respected, but are often drawn upon. They're often drawn upon as examples for things. Not always clear what that really tells us about the perception of bakers. But, you know, sometimes, I mean, Aristotle, for instance, calls upon them for almost their no-nonsense approach to things. Um, so he, he bemoans uh, philosophy and the need to define things. And he goes, you know, we, we, bakers do not spend ages defining bread. They don't define whether it's baked. <laughs> So he would have hated our earlier conversation, Karen. He would have hated it. Yeah, that's okay. I, you know what? If he even gave us the time of day to consider what we said, I'd be happy enough with that. Have you come across any uh, named examples of individuals who are particularly well-known as bakers, whether for, you know, being pretending to be posh or, or just particularly successful as business people in their communities? Yeah, yeah, we do have some names that turn up. Within the Greek world, we hear of a baker called Thearion, um, who is just a famous baker, apparently. Um, we don't hear any more about him. We don't know anything else about him. He's just clearly famous um, and well-known. So he must be good at what he does. Um, the reason why we can say he's famous, as opposed to, you know, one person knew about him and wrote about him and mentioned him, is because he appears in more than one source. So Plato mentions ah. him, but also so did like the You're going to appear in one source, though. Plato would be pretty good. That's, a, that's impressive. <laughs> it's not bad, is it? It's not bad. <laughs> no. It's not bad. Alongside the philosophy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so he appears in uh, Plato. He also appears in some of the comedies. So some of the Athenian dramas. The oh, comedies. wow. Okay. Maybe that's even a bigger deal. Yeah, so he's name dropped. I suppose is the way to think about it. He's name dropped. So the fact that he's name dropped not only by Plato, but he's name dropped by a playwright who is writing to an audience. So this is the way to think about it. If you're name dropping someone for an audience of Athenians, you've got to kind of assume the audience know who he is. You can't name drop someone yeah. no one knows. It doesn't work otherwise. No, it doesn't work at all. Um, so, you know, this gives us an idea. He must have been well-known. He must have been what you and I might have referred to as quite famous. So we've got Thearion. We also hear mention in only one source, so maybe not that famous, um, a man called Caribus, uh, um, who is mentioned by Xenophon, uh, another historian, writer, and philosopher, another student of, of Socrates, along with Plato. Hmm. Um, he mentions this baker, uh, and just that he's very rich. Okay. Just kind of commented, he's very rich. Um, but I think for the ancient world, generally, the most famous baker um, is uh, Eurysakis, or Eurysakis, um, who is a baker in Rome. And the reason why he's famous is not because he appears in any of the source material, no one writes about him, but he builds 
a whacking big monument to himself. A tomb. It's called the Tomb of the Baker. And it's oh. his. Um, and it's the most amazing monument in Rome. Um, to go to it, I, I, I've been to it a couple of times. And to go to it, you have to kind of go in the opposite direction to the Colosseum and Palatine Hill and all these famous sites. you got to kind of go away from that and towards like the train station. Um, and you're walking along the road wondering, I, is it going to come at any point? Where is it? Um, and there's a massive, massive road junction, like an intersection of roads. And in the middle of it is this tomb. So you've got to kind of take your life into your own hands to cross the road. Um, I love Italy. They're driving. I'm sure that you, I can see you doing it. It's about bread. It's about ancient. I I got it. All right. I will do it. I I will take my life into my own hands. I will cross these roads. Um, So you run across um, and yeah, there's just this this lovely monument there uh, made predominantly of um, concrete really and faced with like limestone. So it's got a lovely white color to it. Um, and it's the most amazing monument. It, it just doesn't look like anything else you'll ever see. So as you're getting the train into and out of Rome, you see it as you come in. It's just kind of there. And it's just really bizarre. It doesn't look like a normal tomb. It actually has um, kind of uh, carved tubes in uh, the monument, um, which are clearly from the bread making process. Uh, wow. Yeah, I was oh, going to ask, what is it? Is, does it have beautiful shaped loaves or is it, is it a big <laughs> oven? Or I mean, I just try to imagine what it would, what the it, Tomb of the Baker would look like or whether it just says on it, Tomb of the Baker. It's, 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 oh, you, I'll tell you what, after this, you have to Google it. It's amazing. Everyone should Google it. All right. It. Tomb. All right. Um, well, we'll post a picture with this absolutely. episode. So that it's got these tubes. Like- There's a bit of a debate what these tubes are for. Um, because, of course, you know, we don't know exactly what the inside of a bakery looked like. We only know bits and bobs. Um, and so there are these tubes. Maybe it's for the measuring of grain. Maybe it's for, you know, it could be for made of things. I think the latest theory is it might actually be part of a kneading machine. So oh. uh, in the Roman period, they really started to industrialize bread making. Um, and they produced almost a mechanism to do the kneading for you. So that you could need large amounts of dough. Maybe it's something to do with that. Maybe it's to do with measurements. We're not really sure. The point being, it immediately uh, identified that this is a baker's tomb. It identified bakery to this man. And it was important for him to put it on. Ultimately, so we have that. We have an inscription where he talks about himself. He talks about himself as a baker. And we have on all four sides, these beautiful carved friezes. So um, almost sculpted images. Um, almost like a scene and on all four sides are the bread making process in his bakery oh that's amazing yeah so it starts with the grain coming into the bakery and being worked and then the kneading of the dough the baking of the dough and then the far the last one which is kind of broken up and we can't make out most of it but it seems to be the um the sending out of the bread probably to be weighed um, and then sold on so we have the whole bread making process laid out for us on this tomb. It's the most amazing source. Yeah. And, you know, I just was thinking, I mean, this sort of, um, you know, productive process, we see very detailed examples of this in, uh, for example, Egyptian hieroglyphic wall art. Right. But I don't know how common is that in 
in in the classical world it's it's just not it's not common at all i, mean, I didn't um, think it was but but again you know, it's not my area of specialty the way no. it is for you so so this is really kind of remarkable yeah it is remarkable and if you ever look up the history of bread or if you ever look up like the, the processing of bread in the ancient world this tomb comes up a lot um because it is probably one of our best sources of evidence other than the archaeological sites of bakeries that we found um, so even then, you know, how do you, in, you know, you're an archaeologist, Karen, you know, it's one thing seeing the remains, but how do you interpret what it would have looked like? How do you interpret? It's really hard. Yeah. <laughs> it helps a lot when they leave the instruction manual on a beautiful, yeah. clear freeze. That, exactly. that is incredible. The that other thing uh, to think about with the Egyptian one, as opposed to the Roman one. So, of course, the Roman tomb is actually quite, to a, a, an elite Roman looking at that tomb, that's a vulgar attempt to look posh to look rich <laughs> that's, that's not how you're supposed to do it okay um so that's probably why we don't see it a lot it's not um high culture it's not elite culture yeah in you Egypt, don't you don't advertise that you actually are a working class person even though you're a rich working class person right precisely <laughs> precisely um but in egypt of course if you have a bread making process so not you know, your wife, your child, or you making bread in the house, a process of staff, slaves, or whatever it is, and you've decided to pick that, that's because that highlights your prestige. It highlights your status, that you have this. So it's a completely different relationship yeah. with the bakery process. So we see it, um, you know, you mentioned the, um, the beautiful paintings we get um, in certain tombs. We also have models like almost like doll models, like doll houses. Of... Yeah, yeah, they're, they're, they're like dioramas. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, um, it's amazing. There's a beautiful one um, where they have on the one side a bakery and on the other side actually a brewery. Um, oh, well. yeah, let's, that, that this is perfect because I wanted to ask you, you know, bread and beer have been interconnected, right? Particularly in the ancient world. And, you know, I wonder if, if, if there's anything you'd like to say about that. Yeah, the interconnected nature of bread and beer is often overlooked, definitely is overlooked. First of all, most people don't know that there is alcohol in the bread making process. So when you make bread, you produce alcohol. You then basically cook it off when you bake it. That's why bread is not alcoholic. I didn't know that. Yeah, tiny amounts, don't get me wrong, but because there's yeast, um, which is obviously the same way you make uh, predominantly make beer um, because there's yeast and the yeast uh, as yeast grows, it produces um, alcohol as a byproduct. Basically um, there is a small amount of beer. There's an argument made by certain bakers. I don't know how widely accepted it is, but there's an argument by certain bakers that it is actually the alcohol that gives bread its flavor. Um, oh. Along with the yeast, along with the other flavorings you'll add, of course, but, and the salt. And the salt, always. <laughs> um, but, you know, that, uh, uh, this is why a lot of people say that sourdough is the best tasting bread because of the long process of proving it, um, which is the process of basically letting the yeast live and grow. Um, that allows the production of alcohol to, you know, happen over a longer period of time, which gives a more mature flavor when it's baked off. This is why sourdough tastes so different. Um, oh. So on the one hand, there is alcohol in bread. So, you know, it therefore comes as very little surprise when we see that bread and alcohol come up quite a bit in the ancient world in particular. 
So, um, like, for instance, uh, Egyptians and the Sumerians, especially, um, used, or most likely seem to have used bread in their beer making process. So they're two very big beer drinking cultures. Not beer like you and I would drink. You know, there's no hops, nothing like that. They don't use that to flavor it. Um, their beer is a lot sweeter. Um, and they would have used um, bread in that process, most likely for its yeast content. Okay. So we hear about um, uh, a particular bread that causes lots of arguments with academics. Uh, it's called uh, bapir, um, which is basically a type of bread that's hard baked. So it's um, almost to the point where it will crumble in your hands. That's how long it's baked. Um, and the leading idea is that this may have been used for um, producing or kickstarting the yeast for beer. So you would crumble it up, add it to your malt, um, add it to dates or honey because you want sugar. You want the sugar in there for the alcohol content. Um, and then you'd leave that to ferment. And then that would be what you then use to produce your beer. Mm -hmm. So it's the same flavors, it's the same grains, it's the same processes going on, and they're all happening next to each other. This is why the Egyptian model we talked about, that's why a brewery and a bakery make next to each other make sense. I just want to move into a consideration of, you know, sort of the legacies and modern relevance of bread making as we do in every topic. I mean, it's sort of a moot question when we're talking about a basic staple food like that. Of course, it's still relevant, but, you know, I... I, I think there's a lot to be said for the explosion of interest and market for this artisanal bread, right? People are looking to buy something that's got a little bit of substance to it, something a little bit mm -hmm. different, whether it's at a farmer's market or, you know, just even a Whole Foods type luxury supermarket chain that carries these things that are labeled as, as um, loaves of ancient grains and, and whatnot. Um, I wonder what you think about all of these fads of, of kind of trying to connect to bread's ancient past in the modern day. I think some fads are absolutely fine. I have no problem with them. Um, so, for instance, the ancient grain one um, is something that always makes me chuckle. Um, and the reason why it makes me chuckle is because I fall for it, too. <laughs> so, you know, in my cupboard, I have a big bag of spelt, ancient Roman grain. Um, you know, I've used kamut, which is supposed to be ancient Egyptian grain. Um, and the reason why I use them now is because they're delicious. Yeah, they're just a little bit of that added to a normal loaf just makes a delicious bread. But when I was younger, I bought them because they were ancient and I wanted to be ancient. Um, so I do that if I made bread, I'm I'm with you. You're, you're exactly to the choir. <laughs> <laughs> so the those sort of fads, absolutely, yeah, I have no problem with them at all. The irony is, spelt, for instance, which is sold as the the great Roman grain, is actually probably one of the lesser grains used in the Roman Empire. Um, they, they talk about it, but they talk about how blooming hard it is to use, um, and how there are better grains. Um, oh. you know, actually, if you want, um, if you want an ancient grain, you want barley. Um, I don't know if you've ever eaten barley bread. I, I find it disgusting. I don't, um, I don't know if I, I think of, do you know what I think of with barley and maybe it's an American thing, but barley candy 
I thought was disgusting. It, it was just a very sicky, sweet, you know, hard candy. I have never heard of barley candy. I, oh, no, barley candy is it's an old timey. We call it penny candy. You know, you go in and um, yeah, it, I, I wasn't a huge fan of it. Coming back to fads. Um, so, yeah, you've got like this oldie worldie fad. That's cool. I haven't got a problem with that. I buy into that. You know, I'm, I'm great fanatics of that kind of stuff. I, 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 that's all good. What concerns me or what interests me, actually, that doesn't concern me at all, interests me is the connection with that and health fads. So it's the idea that ancient grains are better for you or that, uh, you know, ancient ways of making bread are better for you. So I hear a lot of people say, oh, if you eat sourdough, it's better for your digestion. Um, and that's just not how your digestive system works. That's, it doesn't care how it was made. You know, it cares what's in it. Um, <laughs> you know, it's like when people say, oh, it's like when people say, oh, I've had, I've had uh, good sugar and I've had bad sugar. And I'm like, well, once it's in the body, your body doesn't care. Um, so yeah, um, health fads become a bit more problematic. Um, but having said that, it's not new. You know, the obsession, I mean, bread is often comes up, doesn't it? You know, about low gluten, high gluten, white flour is the devil's food or everyone should have wholemeal or brown flour or whatever it may be. Yeah. I mean, what 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 was the sort of debate, if I may use that word, in in, in the ancient world? Do we know? Did, did people prefer wholemeal or, or white bread or did they even have a choice with the processing required to produce white flour? Well, the... Oh, you've asked about three really good questions there. Um, the first one is, yes, there definitely is a debate. And not only is there like proof that people thought about it, there's literally a debate. Different authors give very different answers. Um, so the medical writer Galen, for instance, is very clear. White flour is bad for your health. So he's quite anti-white flour. Um, however, the, um, the writer Athenaeus, who writes a lot about food, and he studies a lot. Of, he studied a lot of all other authors, including Galen. Uh, and he actually has a whole section on this kind of debate about bread. And he argues that basically the purer the flour, so the more refined the flour, the whiter the flour, the better it is for your health, the better it is for your digestion. What's really striking about these these sort of three categories of, of, of best, better, and, and terrible is is that you know, there, there'd have to be a real class element to the kind of bread one might be able to produce oneself, right? I mean, anybody could cook something over the ashes of a fire, but having equipment, a special pan and, you know, an oven, I mean, what, that would seem to me to be maybe something not just everybody has in their private home. It, is, is that yep. correct? Or am I just sort of uh, fantasizing here? No, you're, you're absolutely right. The same thing jumped out to me when I first started looking at this. Um, this is entirely driven by elitism. <laughs> yeah. Entirely. Um, so, you know, uh, the healthiest stuff is what we can do. You can't do it because you're poor. Yeah, yeah. You have to buy it from us. Come, come to, to, to our, our big industrial size ovens. We'll sell you the best bread for your, for your health. <laughs> it's, like, it's like the ancient goop. Uh, oh, God. Paltrow selling her wares. <laughs> Um, to be fair, uh, a lot of health fads to this day are still based on that. You know, you need to Aren't buy the they? The oh, yeah. And you need a lot of cash to have it. And it, it's yeah. shocking, right? But it's for your health. 
it's this for is your it. And then you're, you're made to feel bad because, you know, um, you can't afford the best food. So you've got to go and have a ready meal or you need to go to McDonald's to get your 99p burger because uh, you haven't got the money to do otherwise. Uh, and you're made to not only feel like uh, that makes you a bad person, but it means, you know, you're not doing what's best for your health or your children's health. And it's um, there's a lot of class division there. Absolutely. And, and hard, hardcore marketing, let's be honest. I mean, it's, it's, it's flogging the business. It's the capitalist way you need this. (laughs) You need what we can make for you. Yeah. Yeah. I I think we kind of ignore um, the marketing in food, uh, especially certain base staples. I mean, um, I don't know how true it is anymore. You'll you'll have to tell me. Um, But so over here in the United Kingdom, eggs, eggs are a good example. Our eggs here are brown. Um, I don't know if it's true anymore in the US, but whenever we see uh, American culture transported to us on telly, it's all white eggs. Funny, funny, because I would always seek out brown eggs to buy. Um, but I also yeah. don't like white bread. I don't, I don't know. You know, I actually haven't given it a lot of thought, but brown eggs are generally more expensive and they're more like a, you know, kind of... Um, all natural, free range marketing. Yeah, sure. It's definitely yep. a higher end egg. Yeah, this makes perfect sense. Um, so over here, we were sold eggs as an important protein, especially after the Second World War. Um, and brown eggs, because brown is healthy, brown is earthy, brown is natural. White is clean, white is uh, purified, white is interfered with in food. Um, so, you know, that's all, mar- that's all branding, it's all marketing. Um, so it's interesting that, yeah, you, you know, and yeah, I'm sugar saying, too, right? I see, right. I see white, oh, sugar, oh, sugar. Yeah. There are people yeah. in sugar who are like, I won't have white sugar. I have lots of brown sugar. And you're like, well, it's still sugar, isn't it? Um, yeah. You know, I, I get you. Like, if you do it for ethical reasons or processing reasons, fair enough, but don't tell me it's healthier. I'd like to hear from you now, um, not just as an historian, but uh, really as as a bread making obsessive, I think that's the phrase you used. Tell us about how you got into bread making and why you love it so much. I got into bread making um, when I was, uh, let me try and get my dates right. I would have been becoming a new father. So I was becoming a dad for the first time. Um, I was sort of between jobs yeah so i was unemployed stay at home dad um and very much not going anywhere uh nothing was going well at all um and it got to the point where i had nothing to kind of cling to in my day no sort of successes no sort of product at the end of my day that kind of like oh i've done this at least um and so you know i wasn't bringing money in so i i took the rather traditional approach well i'll be i'll be the bread maker rather than the bread winner um so that's how i kind of got into bread um it was terrible to begin with i couldn't do it at all uh it's really it was on your own it's quite hard to try and work out how to do it um so you know i got lots of like recipe books got like watched a million shows and uh videos and things trying to work out how to do it um i started to get the hang of it um and the thing is, once, once you start getting into bread making, it becomes a bit of a bug because one it is uh, no matter what happened in your day, a freshly baked bread is just a lovely thing. 
Um, I mean, there's a reason why estate agents and, uh, you know, when you're selling your house, they advise you, if you can, to have freshly baked bread in the house. Uh, The smell just evokes homeliness. You know, Mm -hmm. it's a lovely thing to have. Um, So there was that. But the other thing was it gave me, um, and it does to this day, it gives me a rhythm to my day. Because you get up, start the bread, leave it. uh, Once it's at the point, you leave it for four hours, go do some work. It's lunchtime. Go start making your lunch. Do the next bit of the bread. Go do some work. Come back. Bake the bread. Whatever it is you're trying to do. It gives you a nice, um, it breaks up your day. It gives you a lovely rhythm through the day of things that need doing. I'll tell you now, I can always tell when I'm overworking and stressed because I'm not making bread. And that tells me that my uh, kind of natural cycle of the day is off. What is your favorite? bread to make or do you have any favorite recipes oh i used to love really weird breads i used to love making weird breads um so i really got into sourdough for a while so sourdough uh this is this kind of oldest way of making bread um and my favorite sourdough was a beetroot sourdough so you take a a that sounds good it's amazing i made it for my daughter because when you grate the beetroot, move, put it into the bread, uh, it turns the dough pink. Uh, and my daughter as was obsessed with the, as it would. <laughs> and my daughter was obsessed. She was obsessed with the color pink. So I made her this pink bread, um, and she loved it. Um, and that's one of the things I love about bread. Bread is a, a conduit. It's a it's a vehicle for whatever you want. So I use it now. Um, I don't make a lot of the kind of fun, weird, wacky breads anymore. Um, I use it now to maintain the balance of the family. So um, if the kids aren't getting enough vegetables, for instance, I can throw vegetables into their bread. If the kids aren't getting enough fruit, I can get fruit into their bread. If the kids aren't getting enough fiber, I can make a more higher fiber bread. So you can kind of um, almost like pull the strings of the family uh, health through bread. And oh, for it's some much reason, more creative than what I would do, which would be to sneak it all into this, you know, spaghetti sauce in the blender. <laughs> I used I used to do that, and now my daughter can pick out the flavor of almost every vegetable. She's like, no, no, that's that's got that's got an onion in it. I'm not having it. That's tainted. <laughs> <laughs> oh, kids are the same everywhere. Oh. Aren't they just? Aren't they just? And is there anything about this? topic of bread and bread making you know present or past that that you still have questions about that that you'd like to learn the answers to i would love to learn the answers to how they perceive bread in their diet and i don't mean our writers i mean the every person so a lot of bread described in our sources is actually what you and i might call hardtack So it's baked so hard, you're not really supposed to chew it. You're supposed to use it. You've dried it out so it transports. Mm. And then you more often than not break it up into like a stew or a gruel as a thickening agent. So what you're doing is you're adding calories to your meal. So as a historian and as, you know, like modern um, food science can see what's happening there. But that's not the same as what they thought about it. And I would just love to know, you know, were they aware of that? 
Is that why they did it? Did they do it so that it was more filling? Did they do it because um, they thought it tasted better? You know, we don't know. We don't know at all. Mm. And I would just love mm. to get their their views on, you know, what did you actually think of these breads? What do you actually think of the fact that that guy over there is selling bread for, you know, half a day's wage? Is that extortionate? Is it not? You know, just things like that. Yeah, it's not the kind of thing people would uh, make record of, even if they were able to write, huh? Oh, well, um, I, you know, I my gruel is so much better with, with the hard tack in it than without. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's probably not something we're going to find, but I, no. I'm with you. I mean, it's the kind of question I wonder about all the time as an archaeologist, mm. because we are dealing with the, the everyday people and the stuff of everyday life that, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't written down. I have one last question, which I gotta ask again now. You you set it up, you served it up to me like a nice softball pitch, Owen. Is it a good idea, if we could, in your view, to recreate the flavors of ancient bread so that we could try it ourselves? Right, okay. Well, it depends what you're uh, setting out to do. So I'll start with, should we recreate ancient breads? Because ultimately the flavoring of bread comes as much from the grain and the process of cooking as it or baking as it does from what you put in it. Okay. So should we try and recreate ancient breads? Oh, good God, no. This is a terrible <laughs> idea. Um, and the you don't want to cook why- your bread in the ashes of a fire and then eat it? Why not? You well, don't, this is you it. have a sense of fun. This is it. Anyone who reproduces ancient breads in a modern oven has not reproduced an ancient bread. Touche. Touche. Okay. So anyone who has used a flour that was not ground on stone that was creating grit as it was moved and that grit was getting in your flour and then wasn't slightly dropping on the floor around some straw or, you know, animal dung or the sweat of men, women working in there, you have not produced ancient bread. You have produced a clean cut pretend version no it's great i love it you know what it actually i mean there's we're talking about crazes and fads and uh, you know i I think in terms of historical crazes and fads that kind of amaze me in this country particularly is sort of the the great fascination with the tutors right and people who want to dress like the tutors and eat like the tutors and yes what they're what they're doing is is very much an echo of in terms of of having a, a beautiful reproduction gown that, that they can feel like Anne Boleyn, but they they sure don't actually feel like Anne Boleyn in any way it would have been to be her <laughs> sitting there talking yeah. to Henry VIII that, you know, after she failed to produce that boy. Um, <laughs> just everything yeah. else in the society. It, the way we romanticize the past, I think it's it's a very natural human tendency, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, really want to be there. <laughs> we also sterilize it. We sterilize oh, the past yeah. as well to relive yeah. it. And we don't um, even realize we're doing it, right? Nah. Because it's, yeah. Well, the, the classic yeah. is sometimes it's because we haven't needed to think about it. So, you know, um, a lot of older f- uh, food cultures use a lot more fat in their cooking and in their food. Um for lots of different reasons, whether it's because they need a higher fat content, whether it's because actually their meat in particular is very lean. And so you use fat so it doesn't dry out. 
Um, they use a lot of sugar. They use a lot of spices to cover flavors that they don't want to taste. Um, and sometimes they literally put things in their food because it's fancy. So you see this a lot in the Tudor period in particular, where there's loads of spices turn up, loads of spiced food. Um, because obviously spices are coming in more readily um, at expensive prices. So, you know, it's, it's again, it's elite food. It's yeah, elite culture. Absolutely. Yeah, it, it's, it's, it's significant on so many levels, right? Yeah, yeah the, it's going to mask spoiling meat. <laughs> it's going to titillate uh, taste buds that haven't had such a variety of flavors available before. And it's going to, above all, uh, send a message to your, to your guests and observers of your yeah. status. Absolutely. Oh, and thank you so much for reconsidering that question that I posed at the beginning. And I thought your answer was really thought provoking. So as always, it's been an incredible pleasure to talk with you. I have learned so much and um, I, I am inspired to go and try my hand at making some bread. Maybe you'll send me a recipe or two. Well, there we go. My, my main aim has been fulfilled. I will send you, a, I'll send you the family bread recipe. I'm going to cry. So, yeah, thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it and really enjoyed my time again. It has been my great pleasure, Owen. Thank you. Bread. It's something so ubiquitous that most of us hardly give it a thought in our busy lives. But it's of such profound importance through so much of human history that even the first recognized historian, Herodotus of Greece, wrote about bread's history, such as it was prior to the 6th century BCE. Bread is one of very few foods that has been a staple in nearly all cultures since the dawn of agriculture some 12,000 years ago, and its consumption still cuts across all demographics from the poorest to the wealthiest. So that sourdough you were so obsessed with perfecting during lockdown? Turns out it's not quite so cutting edge as the modern insta-foodies would have you believe. But think about the ancient lineage you're joining whenever you make it, using the same basic processes as ancient people did around the globe. As always, thanks for listening. Until next time. And I've got to say, now I'm kind of hungry for some toast. Hey there. You can follow today's guest at Reese History on Twitter and at Ancient Reese on Instagram. Check out BadAncient.com for the real scoop on all things ancient in the popular imagination. For show updates and additional content, follow us on Twitter at WorkingOTSeries. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts and check out our brand new website at www.WorkingOvertimePodcast.com. Working Overtime is part of the Little Fire Podcast Network and is made in collaboration with Past Preservers. Today's episode was recorded live across the globe over Zoom. It was produced by Karen Bellinger, Nigel Hetherington, Aidan Law Liberty, and Raz Cunningham. Our director was Raz Cunningham. Follow us on social media for additional content and show updates at Working OT Series on Twitter and Working Overtime Series on Instagram. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button. Thanks so much for listening.